Hello and welcome to Counterpressed on The Ringer and Spotify. I'm in the studio with Jesse Park Humphreys and producer Becky. Guys, it's a culture counterpress today. It's been a hot minute because we've been doing serious football chat. Hate that for us. <laughs> <laughs> what do you prefer, Becky? You prefer the silly stuff? Obviously. I mean, today isn't silly, but... I prefer. This is a girl who moved from sitting next to me at Arsenal <laughs> earlier in the week because I was too boring because I was watching, watching the, the game. Football. Jesse was talking too much about the football. <laughs> there was too uh, much football chat. You were like, so I'm I, out of here. I moved away. I just wanted vibes. You weren't giving me vibes. You were giving me dad. Dad's very serious at the football. Oh, sorry. Also, you didn't even support either team, so it's not uh, like that's why I was like, I'm moving away because I can deal with it when it's Chelsea. Because I'm like, I get it, I understand why you're being serious, but um, I had no time for it earlier in the week. <laughs> and you just made Kate put up with me, <laughs> yeah. And the second half, you're like, I'm not, no, it was extra time, it was before extra time. You were like, I'm not saying you have to move, basically, yeah. No, at half time, at half time, I was like, Kate, it's your turn. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, some of us, Becky, need to talk about the game on our podcast. Exactly. And in writing, we actually have to concentrate, Not even me. though I get quite distracted quite easily. It's hard. Sometimes to... I think I have a really good football opinion, but because that's not really my job. It's just like I can never find a time to say it. Maybe I'll start putting my hand up if I think I've got a good point. Put it in your put it in your iPhone notes and then find time to. No, bring I mean up. in the podcast. I oh, never right, feel okay. like I like have the time to jump in and oh, be like. Oh, as please. the editor, you should just record little voice notes <laughs> and insert them like Easter like, eggs. Then you won't have to worry about me and Flo reacting yeah, and saying. So true, actually. No, That's then you stupid. could <laughs> then you could do AIs of us AI voiceovers of us being like, "Yes, Becky, that was really good. What a great and, point. People would never know. They would just drop it in. It'd be great." It would never be a stupid point because I have to be so sure on my football opinion to feel confident sharing it. So. I know sometimes I sometimes I feel bad because you'll have a really good point and then you almost get like you get scared to say it and I'm like no it's a oh, safe space. This is a safe Thanks, space. Guys. Also sometimes I like go uh, and then flow just carries on so I'm like okay I, so I don't care that much. <laughs> I feel like of you know all the people you could do a podcast with me and flow are probably like the two best people for saying really stupid shit all the time so yeah, as we know from our end of a cell takes. <laughs> yeah, actually, can we tell everybody what happened? So, this is a funny story before we get onto our serious documentary I've, chat. I've screenshotted it so I can uh, read um, it out. But a few, well, a week, week or so ago, um, one of friend of the show, um, Pippa, aka meme astronaut on Twitter, big Chelsea fan, was doing a, a funny tweet saying, you know, um, People who get podcasts and think they're, read they're journalists. Cool. Yeah, you can read it. Allowing people with a Twitter account and a podcast to become de facto journalists, in quotes, in women's football was a mistake. <laughs> so I, obviously taking the piss, <laughs> quote tweeted it and put at counterpress. And I didn't actually at us, which I think maybe is why yeah. this has happened. So I yeah. put at and then counterpressed separately. And then someone replied, they recently were like, if the NWSL wants to be considered one of the best leagues in the world like the WSL, and it was such an absurd take. <laughs> and then, you know what's funny? Is that they did that tweet, bef and then what proceeded to happen that weekend, the NWSL call a game off at halftime, and it will not be replayed, and the 1-0 result will, you know, the 1-0 score will stand as a final result. So, sorry, sounds pretty tin-pot to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Lesson is, always check who you're replying to. <laughs> I love the idea that maybe they did 
No. <laughs> yeah, true. No, it's because it's is the, they it's the they? yeah, the they. Like if you want to say, they like, could be referring to me. <laughs> <so> true, <laughs> I wasn't on that podcast. No, so. it was my so-called absurd take. But I'm sorry, your bloody broadcast doesn't work, and you're calling off games at halftime. I need to try and take you seriously. I simply cannot end up a cell. I cannot. But you do have goalies scoring in the late minute in a corner. True. That's pretty epic. That was cool. Yeah, um, yeah. So you know that. you're on the up. But I do. <laughs> Obviously, obviously it is a gag and a, a hilarious rivalry of what's the best league in the world. And, you know, it happens with the Premier League as well. Like, there's always... If you don't have promotion and relegation, and I'm sorry, you cannot be considered... You guys have gone so off-piece The best <laughs> league in the world. But I, I do... Like, You've been I, NWSL <laughs> rattled. <laughs> Even though it is a gag, I do think right now where, like, European women's football is, the fact that the Champions League is so strong, like the broadcast deal, the group stages, the teams, the players. I just do feel like this part of the world is kind of thriving a bit more than the end of Bissell, North America right now. I think everyone can just have their own leagues and enjoy they can. They can. enjoy just, them and you know everyone's gonna think their own one is the best but, i do agree our one is the best but, <laughs> but always check who you're applying to that yeah, is the real the lesson, lesson that's lesson right right on today's show we're going to be talking about a new documentary that's just come out i actually came across this can't remember i think i was just scrolling on twitter they were doing a screening of this documentary in london we missed it but we managed to get in touch with the filmmaker about a new documentary called category woman and it's all about the problematic history of policing women athletes in sport um specifically this documentary focuses on athletics talking about four women from the global south and the way that they were forced to undergo medical intervention in order to just compete in their sport and the way that their bodies were investigated for how they look the way that they were judged by their success and also the backdrop of sexism and racism that exists within sport at the moment especially athletics so we're going to be talking about this documentary that's come out please google it as well if you want to take a look and i believe there is a way that you can like watch it digitally as well if you do want to have a look at the film we're talking about we're also going to be uh, hearing from the writer and director of the documentary phyllis ellis so let's get into it next So, guys, before we actually get stuck into talking about the content, we're obviously going to be hearing from the writer and director, but general thoughts and opinions just on the film as a whole. Did you enjoy it? What you didn't like about it before we get stuck into the the big stuff? Yeah, I thought it was very interesting and I enjoyed the way it kind of melded the history of the stuff with the voices of the athletes themselves who've been affected. Um, I will say, I think it's, <laughs> it's like kind of understandable, but obviously because they don't directly speak to Castro Semenya, I think that was the thing that was like really kind of missing for me um, in terms of what could have like elevated it. But I think it was also really important to maybe to focus on women who, who aren't in the limelight in the way that, you know, everyone does know and understand Semenya's story. Um, and I, what I also thought was, was really interesting was the way they kind of explored different kind of, you know, women from both Africa and a woman from India and, you know, the kind of uh, differing um, realities of their lives there and, and how they'd been affected. Um, I thought all of that was really interesting. 
Yeah, I think it's a good point about um, showcasing those stories. Like everybody obviously knows about Casa Semenya, um, but I actually had no idea about the, the other women that were featured. And I think that's like probably a very universal experience for anyone that does watch the film. And also just it kind of shines a light on how often this happens to so many women that we don't know about and how common it is and how common it has been uh, in history and how, yeah, it's it's not just these high profile stories. So I thought, yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah, I agree. I would have maybe liked it to reflect on some of the mod, obviously like a lot has updated since the movie came out. There's been like new policies which will reflect on. So it's quite hard to keep it relevant and keep it kind of... Um, in time but I would have maybe liked it to reflect a little bit more on the modern context and uh, you know a bit what we've talked about this series on the podcast which is kind of like reflecting on the wider context as well because it is a very specific look at the history of sex testing and the, the, the history of the way that athletics has through a kind of colonialism lens um, judged women's bodies especially like black and brown women's bodies about how they look and I would have liked maybe to reflect wider than just this conversation around intersex athletes and actually include the conversation around trans athletes as well in the sport because we don't really ever touch on that in the film but it's obviously like right now that is such a big conversation in the sport but this is obviously focusing very much on like the elite side and these specific women and many more that they reflect on who you know aren't interviewed but it kind of maybe they should have like widened the net and get a bit more of a kind of grassroots perspective as well um but i think you know they did a really good job of kind of tying in all that history which is kind of what i wanted to ask you you guys about really initially because the film starts with providing a lot of context around the history of sex testing which kind of came to um, came to the fore in, in the 1940s when athletes competing um, in major events were asked to provide a certificate of femininity um, in order to, to, to prove that they were a woman. And this kind of came into action because there was this fear and anxiety around men potentially infiltrating women's events. And it's obviously quite similar to what we see now, but at the time it really came about because of... Nazi Germany and this kind of fear of the way that they may spread ideas or, or also worse spreading ideology kind of through sport and the way that we know, you know, through political history, sport is a massive tool for for these sorts of um, kind of um, dictators to use to kind of implore their 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 views on society. So there was a real fear that that that, that would happen and therefore they created these these tests. Now they were pretty grim by all accounts and they talk about that in the film, these like literal nude parades where women would be asked to kind of walk through a room completely naked and people would look at them and judge whether they were a woman or not. But it also, you know, it could be quite invasive um, scientific, scientific experiments and things like that. But I kind of generally wanted to ask you guys, what was your knowledge of that before the film? And did that take you by surprise or shock or, or what? Yeah, I wasn't um, aware of how far back the kind of sex testing goes. I think it really is a really stark um, showing of how this conversation has just been going forever. And actually, there is no like biological, one biological definition of what is a woman. Um, and it makes it very clear that 
these things have changed over time of what they're looking for and you get to kind of modern day and it, it's testosterone now is that is that marker of what makes you a woman and actually it's just the newest thing to on the block to use against women um and you know there will be another one probably after testosterone um and yeah it's men have never had to face the indignity of having to do a nude parade or be gender tested and have these invasive um processes just to play the sport that they love um so it's really it's, it's like tough to watch and and be like how many women has this affected um over you know the last century yeah, there's actually a stat that comes up, I think it's in the credits, which says between 1968 and 2000, it's estimated that over 10,000 women in all sports were officially sex tested at the Olympic Games. And there are thousands more in international competitions that would never been recorded, which is like terrifying. It's grim. It's horrible. It shouldn't be allowed. And, but, and yet we're still doing it, but we're just doing it in a in a more modern in quotes way of doing it that kind of seems to like justify why we're doing it i don't actually know how anyone could watch that um brief history of of sex testing in the documentary and think that anything that we're doing at the moment is morally correct yeah and i think what's interesting about it is you know what the documentary puts across really well is that this is a human rights issue that stopping women from participating in sport is a violation of their their human rights and it it brings up this really interesting question about you know who or what is sport for because everyone who plays sport is a human it's kind of for the entertainment and enjoyment of other humans so in terms of you know that i think brings up the question of who are you protecting by excluding certain women and it's you know i think a, a fairly obvious category of women they're not like all white and blonde put it that way um in in terms of this this kind of creation of femininity of femaleness in inverted commas and i think what's so concerning about you know both seeing this in in terms of gender testing with women but also in terms of thinking about uh, trans women and, and things like that is that you know we we could have been in a world where we were moving away from these sort of like colonial dimorphic ideas of, of sex and gender and choosing to be more enlightened and think about those things and and actually I think Becky you, you raise a really good point about you know like it's testosterone now but it could be you know something else in the in the future it's whatever and we is see, socially acceptable well we see that actually with with trans women yeah. right the idea that um you know trans women who they could uh use hormones to suppress their testosterone levels to an extent that they would be they would fit inside this like totally made up category and then people say well you've gone through a puberty so you've got mm. like this different muscle mass etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think that's like a really pertinent point of being like the goalposts are always moving and they're moving to protect certain people and to exclude others yeah, I think that that is kind of my overarching feeling of this watching this whole documentary is it's that everything that, that the powers that be are doing to to make things fair 
it's it's just all they're all they're justifying their discrimination and their like hateful hateful practices on this justification of fairness but you're right like who is it fair for um subco there's a quote from subco in the in the documentary that says i will not pretend the world is a fair place then why are you trying so desperately to make it fair for the women that you think should um should have you know the the best um starting point i guess and and if you take out all of the women who don't fit into this um, subscribed femininity that they are uh, striving for, the um, IAAF, if you take just basically, if you take all the white blonde women who want to compete, they're still not a fair starting point between all of them. They all have different backgrounds and different experiences and different um, privileges that create an environment that that shapes them as an athlete. Yeah, I think it's it's important to reflect on that as well because that Sebco quote you mentioned and you kind of touched on it there is there are always these advantages within sport and it's why Great Britain is really good at certain sports in the Olympic Games because we're a very wealthy nation and we've been become very good at cycling because we spent a, a shed load of money on getting the best equipment and having the best coaches. And, and then probably dope all our athletes. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, yeah. Allegedly, allegedly, we don't want to be sued by British Cycling. Um, but do you know what I mean? It's like they, the, there are things that people do in order to be successful and they are considered socially acceptable or fine and just par the course and not an advantage and fair. But there are certain things that many international federations, and in this specific example, it's the IAAF, they want to try and create this idea of what they believe to be fair when they admit themselves there is no fair, perfect, you know, utopia within sport. So it's up to them to decide. And when you look at the makeup of their board and, you know, the way that they use science, and there's a long conversation in this documentary about scientific integrity and the where where the IWS research falls down and what they want to look to and what they don't. And it just opens up so many question marks when you allow sport to have this power to make these decisions. And then you've got act- an actual powerful body like the UN, which can actually make world change, saying it's a human rights violation. They're like, not us, not I, that's not me. And you're like... Like it's so hard in sport because we are just beholden to these sort of, you know, gods. Which is so frustrating because sport is like a really, really good place to open up these conversations. And also for people in power, it's a really good place to beat down on the people that they want to beat down on Mm. in wider society. I think the something I was thinking when you say, Jesse, when you were saying, um, we've created these sports for humans, for our entertainment. And that is kind of like, it's all made up. Like we've, we've created these sports. We've created these categories. We can create a a better place to, to do those in, but it's like, it's so difficult and we're so stuck in what we have done in the past. And what we have done in the past has been, as you can see in this documentary, like really bad and a lot of human rights abuses. Like we don't have to do it in this way. We can open up these conversations and create this like wonderful world where everyone can compete and love sport. And but instead, for some reason, we are horrible and <laughs> have decided to make it awful for a lot of people. I thought think what also is interesting about that is, you know, naturally the 
the Twitter keyboard warrior in my head immediately goes, oh, so you want to like get rid of, um, you know, men's and women's categories and blah, 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 and then no one would ever win anything. Um, but I actually think, you know, there is this interesting notion of, of what role does misogyny and um, the idea of like male primacy have in these kind of conversations because it's very much accepted that men are just better at sport than all women and that that is is rooted in in biology and to me it's a question that is so much more complicated than it seems you know I'm obviously really into endurance running and something really interesting that happens as you look at longer distances, I'm talking 100 mile, 24 hour races, is that the gap between men and women in in those kind of categories becomes very small to the point that women often beat men. Um, equally, if you look at how um, the like marathon world records have got like closer and closer over time, like I don't know if we'll ever reach a point whereby like they're they're gonna carry on getting closer. Like obviously you can't predict that, but I do think this um, you know like innate notion that that supposedly there is this like male biological primacy, which is like what ostensibly is then being protected against in these situations, right? Because they're basically saying to these women that like we think you are too male. And therefore, that gives you an advantage. Like, I don't understand what that's supposed to mean for people who are women. Um, like, it just literally doesn't make sense. And then what becomes fascinating is it's like, well, these people are being told that often because they are running very fast. And it's like, so what is the other anxiety there around fast women? Like, who is who is freaking out about that? And the idea is that it's other women, but it feels like there's also another category that benefits from those women maybe mm. not running. But, but it's more socially acceptable as men to be like, oh, look at these these fast women who they might not be women and they're going to beat you, girls. Mm. And that is, and we've seen, you know, the figure, especially of the white woman throughout history being used uh, in in racial context you know against uh, black and brown people to to basically this idea of this like naive virginal white woman who's like can't be sullied and it's the same needs kind to be protected must be protected and then it's like oh, okay so it's like nothing to do with us like mm. it's it's for her and you're like and that's also what's like you know so disappointing and in terms of into athlete solidarity that's something what i think is really frustrating is when you see white women you know participating in this rather than using um these situations as as an opportunity to stand in solidarity with their other athletes let's focus on the athletes that the documentary talks about because casa semenya is kind of the the most high, high profile example of this and what a lot of listeners will be familiar with and she is a hero in south africa and there are lots of people fighting for her right to compete in South, south Africa especially and you know she had representatives in the UN talking on her behalf and talking about how um, this was such a violation but you know a lot of people know her she's South, south African a 400 800 meter specialist um, she kind of comes to um, the, the comes to 
the the peak really and and why people notice her is uh, the 2009 world championships final um and she wins her race and that's kind of when she becomes you know a target if you like so the film kind of starts with her but she, um they don't actually you know interview her but she's kind of what you know kicks off this whole conversation and then they kind of look at the fact actually you know Castellmenia is a high profile case of this but it goes way way back and it's about more than just her um she did have success uh, at one point of appeal, but then I think she lost um, the the second point of appeal and is is going to be appealing again at the Court of Human Rights, and that's ongoing. But then the the, the documentary kind of moves on to these four specific women. One of them is Duty Shand in India, sprinter, so kind of much shorter distances. Then we've got Evangeline McKenna from Kenya, who's a 400-metre runner, very talented junior runner, and she was kind of coming up the ranks, uh, and then people started questioning her success based off what she was achieving. Margaret Wambui from Kenya, 800-metre specialist. She won bronze in Rio in 2016, but in 2019, she was told she cannot compete anymore because of the IAAF's rules around testosterone. Uh, Annette Nagessa as well, who is from Uganda, and the film really talks a lot about her because it follows her journey to seeking asylum in Germany. She was a very talented 800-metre runner in Uganda. She was breaking national records. She represented Uganda at the 2011 World Championships. And again, she was targeted because of her results and because of her appearances. And she alleges in this documentary, and the IAAF do dispute this, that she was advised from her national federation and from representatives from the IAAF to undergo life-altering surgery, which she she was believed and she alleges she was told would reduce her testosterone, but in fact, the surgery she underwent had no impact on that. It's changed her life forever. Um, she is now having to take kind of hormone replacements and is still training in Germany. She's begun, you know, running again, but obviously she's lost such a big part of her career. So it focuses on these four women and how the te sex testing uh, or the modern equivalent of it, uh, focusing on testosterone, has really changed their lives, not just from a I'm no longer an elite athlete, but mentally and physically impacted everything because a lot of them have lost literally everything they've had. They've had to move countries. In the case of Mark, of um, Annette Negesos, because she was scared to return to Uganda because she thought she, you know, she was going to be killed, and that's why she sought asylum in Germany. So it's um, it's harrowing to see their individual journeys, and you know, some of them are are kind of uh, undertaking um, appeals and various kind of. Um, court cases. I think Duty Chan's was successful. Um, her cast case, which is why I think Casa Semenya felt so positive about what she might be able to achieve, but um, it's still ongoing. But it's important as well to kind of look at those athletes and see, like I said, not just the damage it's happening to them from a participation perspective, but actually the impact it has on their lives, Jesse. Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the most like harrowing elements of it is just knowing that this is like skimming the surface in terms of, of the stories that, that are out there. You know, there's there's only a focus on, on athletics in this, but, you know, we've seen in football, like Barbara Banda was, you know, banned from uh, playing in, in AFCON, basically. Um, and CAF have like stricter rules on, on testosterone levels than the Olympics do uh, for football. Um, so I think... There's also a really interesting um, 
element of this documentary, which is something that I've been thinking about a, a bit in other contexts as well, which is also about this like publicization of, of medical information. You've got these very, very young girls um, who suddenly everyone knows everything about them and um, there was a really uh, interesting piece by uh, Daisy Cutter who are a very cool zine who who write around cricket talking about Jofra Archer and a tweet he did recently about um, people writing about it, um, an operation he was having during the cricket season and you know what right do we have to to sports people's bodies and a knowledge about their bodies and this idea that you know sports people's bodies no longer become their own because they play sport they instead become you know something to be consumed by us as viewers or to be used by their employers for example and i think actually that's a really interesting way at looking at at what hap- what's happened in these cases like who who gets to have their own body you know like why is it that simply by running in the 400 meters or 800 meters at a national level suddenly the rest of the world becomes privy to all of your medical information. And, you know, the the athletes talk, you know, a lot about really like losing that that kind of sense of self and sense of who, who they are. And, you know, we live in a society as well, especially where, you know, it's and I, it's silly that we live in this society, but, but where gender is seen as being a really intrinsic part of who you are. And you see in all of these cases how damaging and harmful that is, because by these women having their gender publicly questioned, they also like lose a massive sense of self in a way that is in, entirely understandable. Yeah. And I think on top of that, having to kind of pick most of these athletes were put in a position where they had to pick whether they wanted to alter their body, have surgery, uh, take hormones in order to just compete in a sport that they want to compete in. Um, and it's an impos- that's an impossible decision and you can't, you know, you can't fault any of them for picking either way. And But you see Annette Nagesa picking, having surgery and, and also like, ha- as she said, not having informed consent about what was going to happen to her body because she was put in a position where she was told if you don't do this you can't run and and you see Cassis Menu being like I'm not I'm not going to do that I'm not going to take hormones I'm not going to change my body because I'm successful and I was just going to say like on top of that what's really funny is that you know so much of also the IAAF's you know other frontier and rightly so is around doping and you know how can you like officially advocate for a clean sport on the one hand whilst on the other hand forcing people who want to compete to dope like it is doping okay we don't see it as giving an advantage the whole point is supposedly disadvantage to disadvantage athletes don't know again why anyone would think that was a reasonable thing to do but you know how can you be going and saying basically that athletes shouldn't be putting anything in their bodies like that's the that's the way if that's what a fair sport is and then saying, but also actually, no, these ones, like you have to, you have to do that. It's like, it just doesn't make any sense. You you can't, I think, hold both of those positions because then you're basically saying that like, actually, no, there, like there is a right way for, for someone's body to be. And then, and then it's like, well, why shouldn't you turn around and take like EPO then? Because who cares? I think like this whole conversation, this whole documentary shines a light on the fact that actually if you look, even just you scratch under the surface, it is not at all about what is right and what is fair in sport. And it's not about the sport and it's not about making it right so everybody can compete at their 
best. It is just hatred. And it, it's really clear to see that. Well, let's hear from the writer and director, Phyllis Ellis. We spoke to her over Zoom from her hometown in Canada to find out about the process of making this film and why she was so interested in the subject. Phyllis, thank you so much for dialing in because I know it's quite early in the morning there. Um, I know also actually your background, you are a former athlete as well as um, turning into uh, a filmmaker. So firstly, talk to me a little bit about your background and what inspired you to make this documentary. Yeah, I I was an athlete a long time ago. I competed 84 in LA. I was 10 years, played hockey. And then I quit sport and I quit sport because of a a lot of conflict. It's a long story. Uh, So I I always like to say I didn't retire. I quit. I'd always thought maybe as a filmmaker, I would go back and do something in sport, but I hadn't decided what. And then this story kind of was floating. I was very interested in what had happened to Castor. And then a really great friend of mine, uh, Dr. Bruce Kidd, introduced me to Dr. Peyoshni Mitra, you know, the story finds you, you find it, and then you're following it, and then you're making a movie. You know, that's a, a short way to, that's how I came to to Category Woman. And also, too, I mean, I was very involved as a young person in sport politics. I was an activist, sport activist, um, support, you know, fighting for women's rights in sport uh, as a young person, and continued that on, you know, in my work, uh, not in sport necessarily, but also just being very interested in, um, you know, social political issues and women's issues. There's lots of women we'll we'll never we'll never hear from um, because their stories, you know, are on a domestic level, a regional level. the The film focuses on on a few individual stories. Obviously, Casasmenia being the the sort of biggest, overarching, most high profile one, but then some other athletes. I think it's really important that you you know what the film does is raise an awareness about these individuals because they matter, and there is a huge risk that these people just become not even statistics because they're not even registered in a document. They're just like lost souls in a way. Athletes have literally disappeared. You know, you could go down a list of athletes that competed and over the years, their names are no longer. And it's because the psychological and the physical, emotional, intellectual, financial, all of those things are, uh, you know, deeply affected uh, when you are uh, uh, outed and, told you something you're not. The film also tries to feed in is this core idea of human rights, right? And we see that with uh, Duty Chan's appeal to uh, Cass and Cass Semenya's unfortunate failed appeal at Cass. But there's also the discussion of this issue with the UN and actually with, you know, human rights conversations in the global political environment. So... Where do these conversations, where are they now in terms of trying to move the dial to say that, you know, you can't do this, you can't subject these people to these testings and you can't try and manipulate who qualifies as a woman and who doesn't? I mean, things have gone backwards as far as the regulations go. As I said, I feel like we're in the 1950s, but sometimes I feel like we're like we're in like that in so many ways. Um, With conversations I've been just hearing, especially in the United States, I know that as public as uh, Caster Semenius case at 18, her, you know, personal medical records being, you know, strewn across the world in headlines, 
Um, and and same with duty, you know, being exposed like 18 year old young young people that, you know, are all of a sudden, you know, international uh, headlines, clickbait. And and it sounds so horrible. But Dr. Mitra says, you know, Peyoshni says that's one of the reasons why they didn't they weren't whisked away to have an operation in the dark, in the quiet. Right. So what I think has changed is their voice, athletes' voices are louder and they have, they have um, support, whether it's in football, whether it's in uh, athletics, whether it's in uh, all the other sports that are affected by these regulations, because every sport has their own uh, regulations around inclusion. So I think that the difference is we're back in the 1950s which are 60s, these conversations. But the voice, athletes' voices, there's far more support. Their voices will be louder and they have more confidence. And a lot of athletes that stayed in the shadows before, I think, will probably step forward. What the film can do is kind of contribute to putting everybody in one place at one time. And it does have a social impact, uh, the more people that see it. And what is your what is your plan with the film moving forward? Obviously, um, I know you've done some screenings at individual film festivals and you did have one in London, unfortunately, that we just missed literally by days. Um, so what's the plan moving forward with a potential, you know, anyone that might want to watch it, a, a wider release? What are your plans? Yeah, so we're we're working with a distributor and uh, looking for the best home, you know, so to speak, international home, broadcast home, so more people can see the film. Well, Phyllis, thank you so much for joining us um, so early in the morning and talking about the film. We really appreciate that. So it's also probably important to reflect on where the IAAF stands now on these policies because after this film was kind of made and it came out and actually just before we recorded our um, Football versus Transphobia special, the IAAF had just released new policies and there was a lot of focus on the policies around trans athletes but actually potentially the biggest story and the biggest sort of concern was the updated ruling on testosterone and the fact that IWF is going to be asking athletes to reduce it even further than they already are and this will affect a lot of athletes and make it even harder for certain athletes to compete in the events they want to or compete at all really so um we obviously you know can't go don't, don't get to see that in this documentary but it does open up all those questions about this conversation moving forward, whether it's athletes with high testosterone, in, like in this documentary, or trans athletes wanting to compete, everything is so limited right now. And like we spoke about in that football versus transphobia episode, it's not just in elite sport, but the conversation in elite sport is becoming a opportunity and a, a stage in which for international federations, spokespeople, athletes, to try and bring wider political conversations to a, you know, very vulnerable arena and expand that into wider society. Yeah, and, and obviously we've, we've kind of touched on this stuff before, but I think, 
you know, it is also pertinent to to talk about the testosterone levels as as potentially being a bigger issue because you know the the frustrating reality for a lot of trans people in sport is that like lots of this panic around it is just not based in reality in terms of specifically seeing trans women competing at the highest level of course the thing with the testosterone levels is as we've already seen this will affect loads of women who are currently um competing and i think this also shows like it's a great way to show too of how lots of these things have unintended consequences stuff that might be maybe seen as being more popular in inverted commas because it's about keeping trans women out of sport actually goes on to affect cis women and i mean again the the cis women who it does affect i think are seen as being you know like there's no problem in in casting them aside but i think it's an important reminder that when people try and uphold um a gender system which is just not a biological reality um you are going to continue to create problems for lots and lots of people and i think it comes back to to the point we started at like what is sport for in in this case who are we making sport fair for what is the point of of competing and you know sport is it is a competition um and it's also meant to be fun and it's meant to be a release and it's interesting and it's exciting. But ultimately, like, that's that's all it is, you know, like sport is everything, but it is also nothing. And I think, you know, what you see in what we see in the documentary and the broader context of how these women and other women have been affected is, you know, it, it puts in stark relief, you know, the role sport should play in our lives. Also, this has been said a hundred times, but I think it's just important to say again, is there is no upper limit on men. Like, none at all. That They don't have to... They have never had to have this kind of invasive testing. They never will have to. There is no upper limit of testosterone that a man could have. There's no biological innate advantage that a man could be born with that will end up with him having to you know take hormones have invasive surgeries to be able to compete well it's the classic michael phelps thing isn't well, it yeah you know like and there's there's plenty of male athletes who who we know that they are like biological freaks of nature and that's why they've dominated sport and you know part i guess you know again if we're talking about like what is sport like that most basic question part of it is meant to be i guess about celebrating you know the variance within humans and and what you know evolution and biology can kind of allow you to do and and ultimately like we do celebrate those differences it just comes back to again it's like why are there some categories where those differences are, you know, for some reason seen as negatives rather than like an incredible and exciting positive? Yeah. And to further that, men will never be put in the position where their sport and the sport that they love, the way that they've been treated in that sport has led them to contemplate suicide. And uh, Annette Nagesa um, talks about that, how she thought about it. Uh, in the documentary and Phyllis just mentioned that when we chatted to her about how she knows women who have committed suicide um, and I think the most important thing and actually I was thinking about this when when they're in the 
documentary they're showing the Lindsay Sharp interview where she's crying after she's lost to Casa Semenya is nothing in sport is more important than someone's right to live their life and nothing is going to be more important than that and one person even considering taking their own life is bigger and more important than what we deem to be fair in sport and uh, this shouldn't have to be said obviously but not winning a medal is not discrimination Lindsay Sharp that is not in any way comparable the pain that you felt in that moment which I'm sure is big you've trained a really long time for that moment it is not in any way comparable to the way that those athletes have been made to feel it, it during the process of their, their gender being questioned. Totally. And I think it, yeah, it just comes down, doesn't it, to who and what gets to decide the parameters, who and what gets to decide what's fair. And we see that across elite sport. We see that with our lawmakers in the UK. We see that with lawmakers Boo. around the world who are deciding you know what they want to do and why they're doing it and it's a frustrating time at the moment and you know we're obviously seeing that in sport as well um like we said at the top of the show if you want to see this film there's information around that on their twitter page i'm not 100 sure, sure if you can actually like buy a stream to have a look but um, I think, you know, the film and Phyllis, you know, is is looking to get investment and get a proper distribution out there. But there's information on their Twitter. There's also information on Human Rights Watch, who supported the film, um, information on their website about, you know, how you might be able to access a screening or if events that they're doing in the future. Obviously, you can find out about all the individual athletes that um, are featured in the film, have a look at their stories and, you know, challenge these things as well and challenge these things in society and not just sport. That is all we're going to chat about on today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Please, you know, send through your feedback as you always do with our culture episodes. And we will be back on Tuesday reflecting on a big weekend of action in the WSL. <laughs>